Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm still, in a sense, reeling from the unforeseen realization that occurs in verse 4 in the simple phrase, but God. The realization that despite our abhorrent corruption and the pollution of our souls by sin, God has stepped in on our behalf without any merit whatsoever on our part to rescue us from our eternal danger. We ask why he would do that. It would have been quite right and completely just for our creator God, offended by our sin, to punish us for our rebellion. That would have been perfectly just and well-deserved. And yet if you cast your mind back a couple of weeks, you'll remember that we discovered three aspects of the character of God which predisposed him to rush to our aid. The first of those is that God's mercy is very rich. He read it in this passage. But God who is rich in mercy. The second reason that we discovered is that God's love is very great. For his great love wherewith he loved us. And then we found that God's kindness in verse 7 is immeasurable. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So God has rescued his people from their sin and their condemnation because of his kindness. And we saw that God, uh, God's kindness is so great that Paul struggles to express it, to measure it, and admits that we will only ever fully understand the fullness of God's kindness when we arrive home in heaven, when we meet the Savior face to face, when God will show us just how great and how amazing his grace and his kindness towards us really are. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. in his mercy and in his grace, his love, his kindness, that God redeems and forgives sinners like us. He didn't have to do that. He could have destroyed us for our sin. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It is because his compassions fail not. It is because They are new every morning. It is because great is his faithfulness. And he does it for his pleasure and for his glory. I want to look at another aspect of verse 4 to verse 7 this evening before we move on. 
And I want to see how God applies that rescue to sinners, to individuals. We already know that God has rescued us. That's exactly what Paul has been talking about in chapter 1. And if you followed me through chapter 1, you will see how Paul is explained in great detail and with great objectivity how God chose us from before the foundation of the world. How he adopted us as his children, his sons and heirs. How he redeemed us through the shedding of the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus. The human and yet sinless blood of his incarnate son. And in doing so, made us acceptable before God in Christ. We learned how he has established our inheritance for us. And we learned how he has sealed us until that day through the work of the Holy Spirit. And all of that has already been done. That happened at a moment in time, around 2,000 years ago. It happened at Calvary. It has been accomplished for us on our behalf in Christ alone, without any input whatsoever from us. It is the objective work of God. And yet, I remember hearing when I was in other circles, I remember hearing people, especially young Christians, asking me and asking others in great sincerity, I know that Jesus died on the cross, But that happened 2,000 years ago. What has that got to do with me right now? Surely I've made my decision and I'm following Jesus. And therefore, how does the cross apply to me? And there's a problem there, isn't there? A problem that we refer to quite often um, as semi-Pelagianism. Paul's ruling that out here, that I have any input into my salvation whatsoever. And yet there is an application to you and to me personally of what Christ has done for us. All of that divine work in its enactment as it is applied to our lives, affects our lives. It is the empirical effects of the rescue from sin that we found in verse 4. So how, our res- how that rescue affects us as individuals is what I want to talk about for a few moments this evening. I know that's a difficult concept. So let me illustrate it for you by using a sermon illustration. Actually, a sermon illustration that I've used before. And I've used it here before. I know I have. It was in 2013. So I hope you remember it. I hope you were listening back in 2013. (coughs) Because that year saw some of the worst weather that our farming community have had to endure for many years. Snow drifts up to about 12 feet deep. We saw awful images of our farmers on the higher ground and in the hills having to dig sheep out of huge snowfalls. One news report showed a farmer up in the glens of Antrim 
digging deep down into a very deep snowdrift and lifting out from that snowdrift a stranded sheep. And he lifted the sheep and he hoisted it across his shoulders, big broad shoulders, and he carried it to a trailer, a flat trailer, on the back of a tractor, and he took it back to the barn to be warmed and to be fed. They dug down into the snow, these shepherds, not knowing whether the sheep would be alive or dead, not knowing whether it would have been attacked by some vicious predatory animal or bird, but knowing this one certain thing, that a lost sheep is vulnerable, in danger. And a lost sheep buried in a snowdrift can't help itself. It can't get out of the snow by its own efforts. That sheep had tried. It had struggled. It had tried to run. It had tried to climb. And in trying... All that it had achieved was to exhaust itself and become even more at risk. So the shepherd searched and dug and looked and found the lost sheep and pulled it up out of its miserable condition and brought it safely home to the fold. Now what did the sheep do? get lost, get stuck, panic, didn't contribute anything to its rescue except to stop struggling and let the saving shepherd do his work. Isn't that a picture of the lost sinner? Because Jesus compares us to sheep that have gone astray. That have been lost. He talks about the shepherd searching for the sheep, the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And that is what the divine shepherd, the Lord Jesus, did for you and me. He rescued us. He came to where we were and in our lost condition, unable to help ourselves, he picked us up and he brought us to safety. So his saving work has been applied to his lost sheep. He has changed our circumstances of life. Now what I want to do this evening is to see in this passage how the salvation that was accomplished for us in chapter 1 and which we saw the rationale for in chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 3 to 7. And we now want to see how it affects us in chapter three, chapter 1, verse 3 to 7. There are four ways. And the first of those is found in verse 5, where it says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. So there's the first one. The first application of saving grace, of the saving work of Christ, is that he quickened us. In fact, more than that, it's more specific than that. He quickened us together with Christ. Verse 5. 
We are rescued from our sinful spiritual condition. Remember, we have already learned in verse 1 that we have been quickened who were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we looked at that when we looked at verse verse 1. I I don't want to go over old ground. We have been given new life. We have been brought from death unto life. Uh, Matthew Henry wrote here, as death locks up all the senses, as death seals up all the powers and faculties, so does our state of sin as to anything that is good. We can do nothing for ourselves. Grace, God's grace, unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. We are given a completely new life. We are quickened. And we are quickened only because we are in Christ. There is no new life without Jesus. There will be nobody in heaven without Christ. The English phrase quickened us together with just those four words. In Greek is just one single word. And that word means to share in the quickening of someone else, to share in the quickening of Christ's resurrection. Our new life springs from the fact that we are in Christ, our union with Christ. It is in him that we live. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 19, Because I live, ye shall live also. So the very first application of that saving work to us is that we are given new life. We are born again. We have a new life in Christ. The second application is found in verse 6. Not only did he quicken us, but he has raised us up. And again, the word together occurs because we are raised up together with Christ and with one another. And the same grammatical structure applies here. The words raised us up together is one word, the word synergiero, uh, from which we get our English word synergy, doing things together. We are raised up from death to life. It is a spiritual resurrection. We have all been raised up in Christ, and we talked about this also. It is an efficient resurrection. It's just as real as the actual physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave. A physical resurrection that shall be ours also at the last day. When we're given new life, it's not to be compared with a medical resuscitation. You know, where we have a critical incident in life and we're brought into the hospital and the doctors and the nurses do their their saving work physically and they uh, bring us uh, back into a state of life where our heart has perhaps stopped and we're grateful for that medical intervention. But it usually leaves us physically or mentally impaired by the experience. New life in Christ is not a resuscitation. It is our resurrection. It is a completely new life. It is an abundant life in Christ. And it's an existing resurrection. It's something that has already been accomplished for us. 
because we are raised in Christ. As Christ is our head, as he is our representative head, we're not only raised with Christ, we are raised in Christ. So look how Paul deliberately couches his words here in the past tense. He says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ and hath raised us up together. It has been done. It's finished. For all of God's elect were in Christ when he died on the cross and are in Christ when he rose from the dead. So it's an efficient resurrection, and it's an existing resurrection, and it's a sanctifying resurrection because we are raised up to a life that is above the life of this world. One would hope that. When Paul wrote to the Colossians in 3 and 1, he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? Changes our conversation. I wonder what way people speak nowadays sometimes. Last night, about nine o'clock or so, we were sitting in our own in the house and my wife said to me, I wonder is there anything on the TV? She was obviously bored with my company. It's very easy to happen. And... Uh, so I switched on the television and a program was on. And about five minutes later, maybe not even that, we just decided to switch it off again. The language was atrocious. There was swear words in every sentence and blasphemies. and You couldn't watch that, you couldn't listen to it. And I said to her afterwards, do people actually speak like that? Or is that the, the, the media with an agenda trying to drag people's conversation down even further than it is? Are they provoking people? Do they want people to speak like that? Is this what's going on here? Because I don't know anybody who laces their sentences with several profanities. But then maybe I'm not moving the right circles for that. I don't know. But I think that whenever we are given new life in Christ, we are raised up above the level of this world. Now, that's not spiritual pride. That's just a fact. We have a different kind of conversation than the people who live in the world. We have a different way of life, a different fellowship. We are raised up. So we have an efficient resurrection and one that has already been accomplished and one that sanctifies the way that we live and one that we will fully understand and participate in in the future. For we are raised up to reign with him, aren't we? Look, verse 6, he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. So a progression in life has begun, sanctifying process. This new life that changes everything, 
this quickening that we have that has already been granted to us at Calvary. This sanctifies our life and prepares us for eternal life with Christ. Right. That's one and two. Can you see number three? He has quickened us and he has raised us up. And in verse six, he has sat us down, having raised us up. And we are sat down, look again, together with Christ. Made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now what does it mean to say that we have been seated in heavenly places? Well, when we studied chapter 1, we noticed that the Holy Spirit has given to us something that we refer to as the earnest of our inheritance. A down payment of what is going to happen, what is going to come. And in that sense, we learned that we are already in heaven. God indwells us through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we are already in his presence. So here's another way of putting that truth. Because we are in Christ, and because Jesus is physically seated at the right hand of God the Father, So in verse 19, we have the same of chapter 1. We learn that um, he has set us down. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. We are already with him. We are already, in that sense, in glory at God's right hand because that is, right now, our status in Christ. He has quickened us and raised us up and sat us down, made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus wonderful thought because outside of Christ and without a saviour we are at war with God aren't we we're in rebellion against him we are rebellious sinners but the whole idea of the Christian being seated implies that he's no longer at war no longer marching he's sitting sitting at the right hand of God in Christ, his labors and his warfare is over and we are at rest. The war is ended and justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the last one. He's quickened us and he's raised us up and he sat us down In verse 7, he shows us off. The word show that's used in the authorised version here simply means to demonstrate, to put on display. But why would God put us on display? It says here, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. 
He wants to show us. Now, what is the exceeding riches of his grace? It is you. You are God's jewels. You are God's trophies of grace that he wants to use to demonstrate his kindness to all of creation so that he will get the praise and the glory. Some of you know, um, on Thursday last week we moved house. And we had men in lifting furniture and putting them in a va- putting the stuff in a van. And we had the van almost filled. And I said, I think that's it. Everything that's going is in the van. And one of the gentlemen who was there from the removal company pointed to a photograph, not a photograph, a painting on the wall. And he says, what are you doing about that? and painting. My father-in-law, Jeanette's father, gave it to us for our 25th wedding anniversary. Hung on our wall consistently from that day to this. Just a rural scene in the morns. Sheep going up a road and sleeve binion in the background. Ah, I said, we'll just leave it there. I'll get it sometime next week and put it in the back of the car and bring it up. He looked at me. You mad? Do you know what that's worth? I says, what do you mean what it's worth? My father-in-law bought it. He says, do you know who the artist is that painted that? I haven't a clue. Don't know anything about art. The artist that painted that is an acclaimed artist. There is a signature. Don't leave that in an empty house. That's worth a fortune. I said, it's been hanging on my wall for the past 23 years. I don't know when it auctioned it. It's like the Antiques Roadshow, some of these things. He said, you can't leave that. You have to bring that with you. And he started telling me about this artist and about how much of a genius he was and how much his art sells for. And he's really painting a a, a picture and praising the artist not praising the painting but praising the man who painted it now look at verse 10 in verse 10 we learn something we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks but in passing look at this for we are his workmanship see that God has done a work in you that you could never do he has painted the image of your life he has wrought a mighty work in saving you from your sin he did it at great cost he sent his own son He sent his own son to die on the cross for you. And you are his handiwork. He created you to be as you are. And he is so pleased with what he has done with his workmanship in devising our salvation, in bringing it about at such great cost that in the ages to come, 
he will be glorified in holding you up as a trophy of his grace so that all of the universe and all of the heavenly hosts and all of the redeemed multitude will say praise God for saving lost sinners. He puts you on display. And it's not for our glory. We are a lovely painting, as it were. Painted from a blank canvas. God has created a masterpiece in your life. And when people look at it, they will say, praise to the God who done this mighty work. Mind you, there's an opposite side to that coin, isn't there? For not only does God put on display his exceedingly rich grace in saving sinners, he also on that day will put on display his wrath with those who are unrepentant. Romans chapter 9 and verse 22 says, What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, to show his wrath, demonstrate his power. And he does that at the end of time to show his righteousness and his justice and his holiness. And again, even that in itself advances his glory and brings from the heavenly host songs of praise for him. So what has God done for us? How has he applied his saving work? He has quickened us, brought us from death to life. He has raised us up. He has given us an abundant new life in Christ. He has sat us down, given us a status in Christ that we are already his. And we are already seated in Christ at God's right hand. And he shows off his workmanship in us. Now, Did you put them all together and link them all and see the link between each of these wonderful experiences that the believer has bestowed upon him or her when they're rescued from their sin? It is this, that when he quickened us, he does it together with Christ. When he raises us up, it's together with Christ. When he sat us down, it's together with Christ. When he shows us off, it is together with Christ. It is he who has been instrumental in quickening us and raising us and seating us and enabling us to be seen as trophies of God's workmanship. It is all of the Lord Jesus and nothing of us. And so next week, if God willing, we're able to meet again. We'll move on to verse 8 and verse 9. 
And we learn that it is only by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.